This year, April is the big month for Asian elections. This weekend, on Sunday, April the 6th, Afghanistan holds its third presidential election, which will be the last before the bulk of the American-led NATO forces finally withdraw by the end of this year. On Monday, April 7th, India, the world's largest democracy, will begin its 16th general election for the Lok Sabha since independence in 1947 and since the first Lok Sabha general election in 1951. Then, on Wednesday, April the 9th, the world's third largest democracy, Indonesia, will hold its 12th national legislative election since the first was held in September 1955. This will be an essential precursor to Indonesia's third direct presidential election in July 2014. Now, let's first mention one historical marker. Afghanistan's presidential election will mark the first peaceful transfer of power by election in its turbulent history. President Hamid Karzai was elected in 2004 and again after the Americans insisted on a runoff election in 2009. Having served two terms, Karzai is not eligible to run for a third term. Similarly, this year, after two terms, Indonesian President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono is not eligible for a third term, and so this year's presidential election in Indonesia will mark the first time in Indonesian history that there has been a transfer of presidential power through direct operation of the ballot box. Now let's take these three elections one by one. First, Afghanistan. What is the crucial criteria which will make the election a popular success? As one top American official puts it, quote, Afghans and those who wish them well want above all an election outcome in which the clear majority of Afghans considered their new leader to be legitimate, unquote. Sadly, there are still quite a few Taliban terrorists who wish them ill. In this connection, many are impressed with the Afghanistan Independent Election Commission, the IEC, which has shown its growing capacity in preparing for this poll. Millions of new voters have been registered, largely without incident. The Afghan National Security Forces, the ANSF, are working closely with the IEC to provide the security for thousands of polling places. It won't be easy, but many domestic and international election observers will be in the country to observe the proceedings. So how has this election developed? Last year, 27 potential candidates had submitted their nominations to the IEC by the deadline on October the 6th. On the 22nd of October, 16 of these 27 were disqualified, leaving 11 candidates to contest the election. Then on the 25th of November, the IEC announced the order in which those 11 will appear on the ballot paper. Nine of the 11 have been registered as independents, indicating that political personalities rather than political parties still dominate the Afghan political scene. Among the 11 candidates, there are no less than two former foreign ministers, two former finance ministers and one former defence minister. These former bureaucrats illustrate the weak position of political parties in Afghanistan in another way.
in their tendency to appoint those otherwise known as warlords as one of their two vice-presidential candidates. Thus, Rod Nordland, reporting to the New York Times at the end of February, noted that Ashraf Ghani, a leading Afghan economist and former finance minister, had called General Abdul Rashid Dostum a, quote, known killer, unquote, during the 2009 election campaign. Then Dostum was supporting President Karzai for re-election. This year, however, quote, Mr. Ghani simply calls General Dostum his running mate, unquote. This aspect of the election, the continuing role of warlords, is bound to secure a great deal of adverse comment in foreign publications. But the reality remains that those whom the West often calls warlords are very often men who are highly influential in their particular area of the country. Nordland estimated that no less than six of the 11 candidates for the presidency include at least one candidate on their ticket who is widely viewed as a warlord with pasts and policies directly at odds with Western attempts to improve human rights in Afghanistan. But he also notes that, quote, many warlords have been recipients of American support, aid and cash in the past. Opinion polling, in the sense of getting an accurate reading of the electorate's political opinions, is in its infancy in Afghanistan and is not very reliable. Pollsters, to mention only one problem, are unlikely to take the soundings in the more distant areas where warlords and also the Taliban terrorists still hold sway, and so they tend to be heavily reliant upon opinion in Kabul. The polls reproduced in Wikipedia tend to show former Foreign Minister Abdullah Abdullah well ahead. He ran well in 2009, securing 30% of the vote in the runoff against Karzai. Abdullah's national handicap is that he is widely perceived as an ethnic Tajik by the majority Pushtus, even though he claims a mixed Tajik and Pushtun parentage for himself. The general expectation is that Abdullah Abdullah and another foreign minister, Zalmay Rasul, and former finance minister Ashraf Ghani are leading the field without anyone being sure of a majority. If this is so, then it could well mean a long delay in announcing the result. The assumption is that these three candidates would divide the majority vote, with none of them winning the necessary 50% plus one for a majority on the first count. The election rules stipulate that if no candidate wins 50%, a runoff will be held, as in 2009, between the two leading candidates. The present timetable for the elections means votes will be counted between April 6th and April 20th, with the preliminary result announced on April 24th. Complaints will be entertained until April 27th. Final results will be announced on May the 14th, and if a runoff is necessary, it will take place on May the 28th. But this could extend the whole election process, with pessimists already forecasting that the newly elected Afghan leader will not be announced until September or October. If so, this will gravely complicate Afghan diplomacy for the Americans and the departing NATO forces.
It will further delay the signing of the U.S.-Afghan Bilateral Security Agreement, the legal and political cover whereby the United States and some of its allies can continue to position a small but robust military force in Afghanistan after the overall NATO withdrawal is completed in 2014. The continuing greatly reduced foreign military presence is considered essential in order to continue combating extremism and training the ANSF. The Obama administration pushed hard for this agreement to be reached late in 2013, only to find that President Karzai refused to sign it until a traditional lawyer-jerga meeting of elders had approved it. The lawyer Jerga was unanimous in its approval, but then Karzai further insisted that his successor should be the one to sign it after the election. Now, when the Iraqis refused to concede a post-US withdrawal agreement with the United States, Obama ordered a total withdrawal from Iraq. Almost certainly Obama was tempted to do the same in Afghanistan. But the Afghans, unlike the Iraqis, had conceded what the U.S. wanted, and a total withdrawal from Afghanistan could undo all the material and social progress achieved in the 13-year war. So Obama ended the looming impasse with Karzai over the signing of the agreement and decided to wait until the newly elected president was inaugurated. There was a strong underlying reason for Obama's patience. Iraq had the wealth with which to beef up its armed forces, but Afghanistan emphatically does not. The Taliban rebels continued to be intrusive, but the ANSF, the Afghan National Security Forces, have made impressive gains. The Afghan government simply does not have the finances to keep the ANSF going. The force costs over a billion dollars a year, most of which is provided through aid from the US and its NATO allies. If the bilateral security agreement is not signed and ratified, it will become even more difficult, perhaps impossible, to secure this essential continued aid from either the US Congress or from allied governments. So Karzai's intransigent refusal to sign the agreement, which he himself negotiated and accepted, has to be tolerated. At least, Obama and the Allies know that all the candidates in the presidential election emphatically agree that the bilateral security agreement with the United States must be signed. But now comes the likelihood that none of these candidates will be declared the winner on May the 14th and that the protracted runoff election period will further delay signature. Seeking to avoid further complications, Obama must be hoping against hope that someone wins the election on the first count. The Indonesian legislative election that takes place nationwide this coming Wednesday, April the 9th, is a massive affair. It's not simply a case of the people voting for the 560 members of the People's Representative Council, the Doan Perwakilan Rakyat, the DPR. It is not simply a case of voting for the 132 members of the Upper House, the Regional Representative Council, the Doan Perwakilan Daira, the DPD. They will not be voted only for the 2,137 members of the various provincial houses of representatives. 
They will be also voting for the 17,560 members of the various Regency House of Representatives. In short, national legislative elections in Indonesia now mean that the people vote for a total of 20,389 members of a parliament. This year there will be an important limitation on who the people can vote for. In 2004, 24 political parties contested the national elections, though only 16 secure seats in the national parliament. In 2009, 38 parties contested the national elections, though only 9 won seats in the national parliament. This time, the government has moved to limit the proliferation of political parties. Only 12 parties will be able to contest the elections. The 12 permitted national parties contain three main nationalist parties, plus four smaller nationalist parties and five Islamic-based ones. So why are the elections on Wednesday an essential precursor to the presidential election to be held sometime in July? Simply put, an election like that in Afghanistan, in which there are nine independent candidates, is now utterly impossible in Indonesia. Under the election law, only political parties or coalitions of political parties winning 20% of the seats in the national parliament or political parties winning 25% of the popular vote for the DPR will be allowed to nominate a candidate for the presidency in the first place. Some Democrats challenged these limitations in Indonesia's constitutional court, but the court recently allowed the new rules to stand. Lastly, India. 840 million, yes, you heard me right, 814 million Indians will start going to the polls on Monday on the first of nine separate voting days for the Lok Sabha over the next five weeks in different parts of India. 930,000 polling stations, 1.7 million electronic voting machines and around 6 million security personnel await them. The last voting day is May the 12th. Counting takes place on May the 16th. One great simplicity circulates. The Indian National Congress, it is thought, will be wiped out. Narendra Modi's energetic campaign will result in a sizable swing to his Bharatiya Janata Party, which will win 200 to 220 seats, thereby winning the ability to form the next government. But I can easily imagine that as this possibility is widely mooted, Modi is saying repeatedly to himself, if only it were that simple.